Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Story Blender. This is Stephen James, and you have found the place where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. Now, there are certain writers that other authors look up to, um, that they're known for their craftsmanship and they're kind of uh, the authors that authors read. And we have uh, one of those as our guest today on the show, and I'm really excited about it. T. Jefferson Parker is renowned for using California settings and depicting the effects of crime on a community, life and death, and mystery in Southern California. He has won three Edgar Awards for mystery writing, a feat that is almost unparalleled in writing circles. His writing has been called potent and irresistible by the Los Angeles Times, resonant and powerful by Kirkus. The New York Times wrote that T. Jefferson Parker is a powerhouse writer, and his works have been called masterpieces. He has a new book coming out, The Room of White Fire, and uh, Jeff, thanks for being here today. Well, nice to be here, Stephen. Now, we were talking a minute off the air that uh, you live in the San Diego area, and uh, actually, one of my books was placed out there, and so I spent some time in San Diego getting to know the area for the book, and uh, I loved it. It was beautiful. Yeah, it's an interesting place. You know, being so close to the border, it has a it has a real kind of uh, you know bi national feel. And uh, San Diego itself is kind of uh, you know it's a relatively sophisticated city, but it's kind of set out you know desert to the east, farm country around it. It's a real interesting blend of of things. Yeah, when I was when I was there, a lieutenant um, took me on a drive around. And uh, we went to some of the drug-infested neighborhoods or wherever because he worked undercover with drugs. And, and he said, uh, I'm going to take you to a cop restaurant. This is, this is my San Diego story. <laughs> and um, I said, oh, of course, yeah, that sounds great. Let's go to a cop. Now he said, but you have to order in Spanish <laughs> because they're, they're all illegals. And I was like, okay, I don't know Spanish, but you can order for me now. So we get there, and it's this little tiny hole-in-the-wall place. I, I don't even remember where it would have been. But, but, um, and there's a line of like 15 people stretched outside. <laughs> And so I said to this cop, I was like, is this place really that good? And he goes, a couple of years ago, some buddies of mine were deep undercover, and they were working here. And this guy came up to them when they were in line, and he said, give me your money. And they said, get out of here. We're cops. And he said, no, no, give me your money. He pulled out a knife, and he said, one of my buddies shot the guy right there in line and <laughs> dropped him. Because he identified himself as a cop, and the guy pulled a knife and threatened his life. And then this um, lieutenant said, and nobody else even got out of line with a body laying there. That's how good the food is. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Good. And I always wondered if it was like a story that maybe they just tell people, you know, they just tell people um, or if it actually happened. But he seemed to be, you know, pretty. And the food was good, but I don't know if it was that good. I don't think I would have stayed in line. That's great. Did that get into your book? I've always wanted to use it in a book, but it's never quite fit. Yeah. Yeah, every time I, I look at the story, I'm like, how can I use that? It just it just didn't work in that book. But it's one of those stories where you're like, I've got to find a way to use this because yeah, real life sometimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So one of the things that um, I'm really impressed with is the Edgar Awards. Um, and, uh, and so I thought maybe we could talk mysteries a little bit. Yeah. And yeah, and what do you see as some of the most important ingredients as you shape and tell your your mystery stories? 
not only, you know, for fans, but also, like I was mentioning earlier, for other writers really look up to your work, and it's kind of nice to be able to sort of pick your brain and find out what the the inner workings are going on as you craft your stories. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those are are good... Good questions. I think uh, you know writing a mystery is um, is um, I think it's a lot harder than most people think, and 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 probably you know harder than a lot of writers think who perhaps haven't tried the form. You know, and yeah. um, um, the you know the the sort of logical demands and and conventions of the mystery are um are are of paramount importance you know you must be surprising you must be um you must have a, a logical um credible um through line and storyline that that's somehow inevitable but but surprising at the same time without yeah. being contrived um, um you need to um provide for your reader um riches of information and narrative and story virtually from the first page forward and um and and yet you still must um not not contrive and not and not go not not try to give too much you need to you need to heap story on the reader but you need to be able to fool that reader and surprise that reader at the end in a logical kind of pleasurable way so you know once all those things are are are, are um you know, once those things are kind of done, you know, I think the next set of of, um, of, of importance for the mystery writer, and, and for me as a mystery reader, is is, is atmosphere, and um, um, atmosphere, and I think crispness and brightness of character, mm-hmm. and and I think when you can combine those three things, that those, those narrative demands and the demands of the form, and you can put it into an atmospheric, whatever that atmosphere might be, you know, place, atmosphere, mood, and then, you know, onto that stage, move these characters who are who are clearly spoken and richly defined and vividly drawn, um, then you have, you have a, a good... You have a good mystery on your hands, and it's um, it's an oddly complicated thing to do. Would you agree? Yeah, and I, you know, as you were talking about, especially at the beginning, I was thinking of how you have to play fair, and it's a game that we play with readers where. Yeah. They want to anticipate where the story will go, but they don't want to be right. They want to be wrong, <laughs> yeah. you know, because if they're right, they'll say, I had this figured out 100 pages ago, yeah. and they won't end up satisfied. So as you were emphasizing, it needs to be logical, but yet satisfying and surprising in the end. And um, and it there is a, a bit of a science to it and, of course, a craft and, and art as well, but those those aspects – I think are are huge and pulling it off is is very difficult. And I think that's why people sort of rely on, you know, narrative gimmicks sometimes where they'll have someone else swoop in at the climax to save the day or they'll use coincidence and things yeah. like that because it is difficult to come up with that turn at the end where it satisfies all of those aspects you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's funny too how um how 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 ingenious and premeditated and clever a, a good mystery can seem to the reader who picks up the the hardcover for twenty six bucks and reads it and just goes, "Wow, this author is so good. He really knew he she, she really knew what she was doing." You know, I mean, and there's not a word out of place when when 
in fact, um, I and most writers that I know really kind of cobble it together a line at a time and a paragraph at a time and a page <laughs> at a time. And at the end, you have this, this sprawl of 500 pages, and you go back and you start to, to throw your elbows and really kind of push it into better shape, you know. And so, and so all of that kind of premeditation and all, all of what appears so, so sort of ordained and so perfect on the page is actually kind of just a lot of hard work and going through things over and over and over again to make those pieces fit. And I think a lot of readers um, and maybe beginning writers don't get that. But that's kind of, for me anyway, um, that's kind of how the book um, you know, evolves. It takes me a year to write a book, just really roughly like two, three months to think about it, another nine months to write the draft, another two or three months to revise it. And so, you know, during that time, I'm, I'm trying to build up and accomplish all those, all those lofty things that I talked about a few minutes ago to make it seem like the book is, was just sort of born that way. Yeah, I've sometimes told people the longer it takes me to write it, the less time it takes you to read it. Um, <laughs> and I, I think that you know, when we spend that that extra time on it, and then we try to craft it, and people read it, and they whip through. They're like, "Oh man," you know, and, and they don't realize that it was a year of your life, you know, put into that book. Maybe a month of time for every hour it takes them to read it. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's now when you think about mystery, do you in your mind make a distinction between building suspense? and um and building mystery like in my mind i usually think of a mystery as a crime to be solved and suspense mm-hmm. as a crime to be stopped mm-hmm. so that you know something terrible is going to happen with suspense and you have to stop the the murderer or the kidnapper or whatever from harming someone or in a mystery typically there's a crime that occurs and then they need to um kind of solve and unthread mm-hmm. the clues yeah. and stuff like that I think you're right. I think your, your 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 synopsis is real concise. You know, kind of the basic, um, you know, difference between the two. And um, I think it, you know, it. Uh, um, there's. It, it's good to know ahead of time what you're trying to accomplish, and then, but then, you know, there's always the best light, best laid plans of of mice and men. Like for instance, um, um, for example, I'm working on a new book right now. Um, I'm, I'm just finishing up the, the first draft, and that book. Um, kind of by design, but kind of by evolution, um, morphed from kind of a straightforward mystery into a tale of suspense. In that, just very simply speaking, you know, the first half of the book is this, is this mystery of, 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 who's, of who's done this and who, who is responsible for this. And, and the second half of the book kind of becomes a question of, can we, now that the mystery is, is, is ostensibly solved, what can we do to stop this guy's next actions. And so it's yeah. kind of a, a mystery that's a, that, that morphs into a suspense story, which I think you see probably pretty often. But um, I think it's really, it's really good to um, be aware of and value the, the conventions of the genre, whatever it might be. But it's also really healthy and kind of uh, mind-bending and, and, and window-opening to realize that you can, you can move from one into the other and back again, and that the, the, the general forms are... Um, you know, the general form of a novel is actually very liberating and very free. And, and, and I really think that when it all boils down to, you know, the bottom line is whether it works or not, you know, kind yeah. of no matter what, you know, what school of thought you're coming from, if you can, if you can build that story into something that works, then you've got, you've got a winner on your hands. Yeah, I like, I like stories that do that, that, that move, kind of weave back and forth from mystery um, to to suspense. I heard somebody say one time that in a mystery, 
the detective is two steps ahead of the readers. In a suspense, the readers are two steps ahead of the detective. And the idea is that when you're reading a mystery, typically you'll, you'll have all these clues laid out, but the detective might walk over and brush off the dust from you know a, a candle in the corner and then look at the light coming through the window and, and you know, pick up uh, you know, the lamp and say, I've solved it. And the readers are like, what? <laughs> I have no idea what that was about. Because he was kind of, he was a step ahead of, you know, the readers. But but uh, to build suspense very often, we allow the readers to see the danger that, or the peril that yeah, the characters yeah. are not aware of. And gotcha. so, yeah. 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 I, and I think they, they work, you know, I think mystery tends to be more intellectual, more uh, curiosity-based, and suspense mm. kind of is more concern and worry and apprehension yeah yeah i think yeah. i i think you're right the mystery is kind of a in in many ways is kind of cerebral i mean i mean the, some of the classic you know british mysteries you know yeah. um agatha christie on forward are, are are cerebral pleasures much more than than visceral yeah suspense often is that visceral that that emotion laced you know worry what's going to happen will they solve this in time and, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know before before something terrible happens and um now some people who write mysteries don't play fair and by that i mean they will have the detective solve something with information that the readers weren't aware of you know, I think of the most famous example is probably Sherlock Holmes when, you know, his big clue to the Hound of the Baskervilles was that the dog didn't bark. Well, they never told us that in the story. We never yeah. heard that the yeah. dog didn't bark, so there's no way we could have solved it as Sherlock Holmes does. Yeah. He knew information that wasn't given to us. And to me, that's a cheat, I think. Yeah. Now, I'm not coming down too hard on <laughs> Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. but oh, I, I hear you. I think, but, I, yeah. I think there's something to be... To be said for that, and and uh, um, you know, you know, sort of tantamount to that is is you know information you know that comes to the reader you know far too you know far too late you know it's so tardy you know you you feel as a reader you've been kept in the dark much longer than you had to be and that you somehow have been you know sort of jacked around by your author and that's not um, that's not I, I think that the greatest enemy the greatest sin of the author. Uh, and for me as a reader, when I, when I see it on the page, is, is contrivance. You know, it just drives mm -hmm. me to distraction when I, when I feel manipulated and I feel, um, you know, shortchanged and I feel that I should have had this information much sooner, uh, let alone never have it at all. And, and uh, yeah, there is that back to the top of the hour, there's a sense of fairness, I think, um, um, that, that you talk about. And, and um, it's, it's, it's tough when you run across a story that that seems that, that seems um, hatched and, and contrived and kind of manipulated, rather than a story that seems kind of naturally told. And again, themes is the key word because you work so hard as an author to get that seeming that seeming sort of truthful casualness into the narrative. You know, and uh, I like that when, truthful when, casualness. Right. Yeah, cool. it's, it's a it's a delight to to read. Whenever I write, I, as I, I'm sure you do, you know, I, I'll write a paragraph that I like, and then I'll, I'll read it 15 times in a row without making any changes, just to see how it, how it plays for me as a reader, you know, and I want to see now, is this, is this, is, does this paragraph, you know, does it sound honest? Does it sound credible? Does it sound like I'm, like I'm leaving something out that really should be here, because that's not fair, you know? Yeah, I, just even in this short conversation, I think everyone who's listening can catch hold of how much you care for your readers. Oh, yeah. um, that, 
your books are shaped for them, that you spend the time, you know, for them, that you look at the story and the paragraphs and everything. And, you know, is this serving the reader? Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that comes through in your writing. And um, I think that's a huge thing that a lot of writers simply either don't do or don't catch hold of. Not that they're not, you know, serving the readers in some regard, but it isn't so foremost in their mind. Hmm. Yeah, it rings true for me. You know, I'm a, I'm a, um, I'm a really picky reader. You know, I was never a bookish kid, but I started reading, you know, fairly young because I enjoyed it, and I, and I still read, you know, pretty widely. And in, in uh, the more you read as a person, and the older you get, the more picky you get about what you're reading. You know, and yeah. uh, so I, I've, I've evolved into a, a fairly picky reader, and and uh, I'm, I'm sensitive to being manipulated and being shortchanged, and 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 and, and being written, you know, down to or being written, you know, reading something by someone who really kind of doesn't know the know the score and and so as a writer i try to put on i try to wear that reader's cap as a writer virtually without ever taking it off and and um i um i i I try hard to be to be um uh, you know not not to write not never to write down and always to write up and to bring my readers along and to take care of them i i often ask these questions as i'm writing i'll ask what do the readers uh, want? What are they worried about? What are they hoping for? What are they expecting? Mm-hmm. And when I look at a scene, let's say, I might say, well, readers really don't care about this scene right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're maybe more worried about maybe solving a different aspect of the mystery, mm-hmm. and yet I'm giving them this scene. Why? Well, because maybe I, I thought it was clever or I thought of it and I didn't want to waste, you know, writing time or something that I wrote. Yeah, yeah. But um, but if it's not what they want, um, I have a sign in my office that says, "Always give readers what they want or something better." Yeah, that's and, good. Uh, yeah, so that's good. You have such a um, you have such a um, sort of a scientific uh, engineering approach to to your your method and your writing. I really I really admire that, and I think that that it must put you um, it must put you in a good position as as. Uh, as writer to be able to kind of analytically break down, say, a scene, like you just said, and ask yourself five, you know, sort of penetrating, pertinent questions about it. You know, I, 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 I'm not as rational myself. I'm kind of <laughs> seat of the pants, and I'm kind of more gut level, and 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 I rely on, you know, I have. I have, you know, I, I, I rely on kind of putting my best foot forward and doing as good a job as I can scene by scene and then, and then listening and trying to keep a very keen ear out for that little voice inside that says, Jeff, you don't need this, or Jeff, they don't care, or Jeff, whatever it might be, you know, yeah. morning, you know, Hemingway called it the crap detector, and, and when that goes the off, you know, Boom. Um, I, I try to, I, I listen to it loud and clear because I don't have that sort of, you know, foundational, geo, you know, scientific, uh, you know, platform that I'm building upon. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm hoping that my instincts will save me. Well, I think they, I think they do, and I think they're honed, you know, instincts are honed over, over time, and, and um, just as you, as you develop the scene and you trust your, you know, like you said, your gut. Now, a lot of people ask these questions. I often ask if people outline or if they don't outline. And with a mystery, sometimes people have told me, oh, you have to outline because, you know, it's so intricate and you have to know the ending before you know the beginning um, or before you start it. Now, I'm not of that bent. I've never started a book that I know how it will end. Hmm. Um, so I'm just curious, what what sort of is your approach as you develop your stories? Does it tend to be more intuitive? 
um, an organic, or do you tend to, you know, plot it out or plan it beforehand? Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm. Uh, I've worked both ways, Steve, and I, I've outlined in excruciating de- detail my books ahead of time sometimes, and I've also um, started in knowing a little more than uh, which character is going to be on page one and what he or she is going to be up to. You know, sure. Um, I've, I've done it both ways. And I think that both ways can work. And, and, you know, at this point in my career, I know a lot of writers. And, and I would say that no two of us really, I know of, do it exactly the same way. And um, I know a lot of outliners and a lot of non. But my basic feeling is that even, even in spite of a, um, a pretty good outline, um, for instance, just for example, the book I'm working on now, I, I wrote a pretty good outline for it. The editor liked it, and he's a tough nut. And uh, agent liked it, and he's a tough nut. And I liked it, I wrote it. And, and yet, as I come, find myself coming to the end of the first draft, based on that outline, um, I, have, I, have, I have changed and veered from and, and deleted some of and added to that outline so much, it, it doesn't really look very similar to the way it looked in the beginning. And I think, sure. it, I think it's imperative for a writer, for me anyway, to be able to um, 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 hit at the plate, um, make big changes as they demand to be made, and that you can remain flexible and alert to ways to make a good story great or um, uh, a good story, great. And I think that that almost by definition has to come during the course of the process and during the course of revisions. I think that, I think that uh, having, having all of your, your, your T's crossed and your I's dotted at the beginning through some sort of um, you know, um, super superhuman outline is, is unrealistic <laughs> and, 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 and probably in the end um, counterproductive. Yeah, I um I tend to think I, I tend to think so as well and maybe it's just because um I read a lot as as I know you do and some you read and you're like, Okay, I can sort of see where this is going or mm. you almost can tell that it was outlined and and that always kind of bothers me and, and I kind of feel like if I can guess the ending of a scene, then readers probably can guess it too. So mm-hmm. I'm always trying to say, How can I tell this story or, or shape this scene in a way that like what you mentioned earlier it's not expected at the end but it is logical yeah. once you look back in retrospect okay i see how things were you know leading all this all this time yeah yeah it's nice to be confounded too i remember early on decade ago, longer than that maybe, I was reading a, a, a novel by a, a friend of mine, John Lesquois, who's one of my favorite uh, oh, yeah. suspense uh, writers, and uh, I forget the book, I think it was called The Mercy Rule, yeah, it was The Mercy Rule, and in that book he introduces this old guy as a fisherman, and, and he's kind of poor, and he's living in San Francisco, and, 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 and all, all fingers are pointing towards him as the perpetrator of this terrible crime, and, and you really see kind of where it's going, and uh, during the course of the book, um, John kind of um, he, he confounds the reader's expectations, my expectations, by, by kind of unlayering the truth around this guy and what he was doing that night in a really beautiful way. And in and, 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 and all of this darkness and all of this guilt and all of this, this terrible sort of you know, ugliness that, that, that this man seems to, be, seems to have done just kind of vanishes a little bit at a time. And, he, and you realize towards the end of the book that really he's a pretty decent fellow after all, and he didn't do it. It was, it was just yeah. the coolest thing to, be, to, be, um, to see the layers of that, of that truth unfold in John's capable hands and see this character not necessarily, well, not, not, not exposed or condemned at all, but actually exonerated. It was cool. Yeah, that's... Um... That is tricky to pull off, to yeah. be that aware of what your readers will be thinking 
and uh, and then to adapt to that as you shape the story so that it ends in a way that that you almost play their expectations against them in a way that makes them happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. I, I I love doing that, and I've done that before. Sometimes, uh, uh, and sometimes I think it works works really well, and sometimes it doesn't. I remember turning in a, a draft of a earlier thriller I wrote oh four or five six books ago I forget which one it was but I remember that my editor after he had done was done reading the draft he called me and there's this kind of long you know long uh, you know pause on the line he goes well Jeff I read the manuscript and I guess um, I guess you've broken every convention in thriller writing haven't you <laughs> and I and I said yeah thank you you know and I took it as a compliment but I'm not so sure it really was <laughs> well I I think, you know, people who will break conventions kind of pave the way for new, you know, types of stories and new conventions to come. Yeah, but, there is some of that to be said. Yeah, it's yeah, kind of new ground I mean, in a way. Yeah, it's easy to fall into cliches, and I think too many stories do that. I know yeah. you were mentioning that um, one of the things that bugs you when you read is, is if it feels contrived, uh, mm-hmm. especially toward the end. And, and um, I know one of the things that that bothers me is when I feel like, I've been maybe taken advantage of in the sense of, let's say that there's a long, detailed scene describing a house, and I think, okay, that house is going to be significant to the story, and then the house never appears again. Hmm. Or a character is built up and then killed off right at the end of the prologue or something like that, Hmm. where I've invested time and emotion into this character or the scene or whatever, and then there's no significance to it later on. Hmm. That's one of my pet peeves. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that that um, you know I, I think sometimes that a um, any, any any novel, but especially a mystery or a thriller, kind of can can be looked at in a sense that that the, the the early part, the first half, is kind of about making promises, and the second half is about keeping them. And and when you don't keep those promises, like you're referring to, whether you you drop characters or situations that are that are you know at the time compelling, and the reader invests heavily in understanding that passage and what's going on, and then you just kind of drop it, then then that that's that, that's a sinking feeling when you're a writer, and it makes you want to it kind of makes you want to read something else. I know what you mean. Yeah, I I actually put it the exact same way as far as keeping and. You know, making and keeping promises. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the aspects you mentioned earlier when you had the three areas, one was um, the setting and then another was the character. And I'm interested in the way you develop your characters. Um, you've done some series books, and then I think your new book right now starts a brand-new series, doesn't mm-hmm. introduce a new protagonist. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So when you're working on a new... Um, a new, a new story like The Room of White Fire or something where you're introducing um, someone new, do you handle that differently than when you're writing a, you know, a book in which you're, you have characters that you've, you've worked with before? Yeah, you develop yeah, you your know, characters? Yeah, you, I, I do anyway. I think, um, you know, I've written a lot of standalone novels. I've written, what, 22 novels now, 23 as of later next month. And um, I think a total of Eight of those, six, nine of those have been part of two different series, and the rest are standalone. So, so when you go to write a standalone novel, um, or go to start uh, start or continue a series uh, series character, you have two very different sets of uh, you know um, circumstances on your hand. And and um, 
When I wrote The Room of White Fire, the book that will be out in August, uh, my next book, um, I, I knew it, it was going to be the first book in a series. Um, I hoped that when I found a publisher anyway. And um, because I wanted it to become a series, I hatched Roland Ford, is his name, in a wholly different way than I would hatch uh, the protagonist of a book that I saw firmly as a standalone novel. And so this, this is probably pretty obvious to you and, and, and a lot of your readers and stuff, but, but if, you're a, you know, if you're a working writer like I am and you're, and you're proposing a series, then you have to be really pretty careful about you know, who you're going to cast as your, as your protagonist, you know, everything from his personality, his age, his history, his growing up, his quirks, his physical, everything about him, you're going you're gonna to have to deal with. Say you're going to have to write, say, say you end up, you're going to write 10 more books with this guy as the hero, or 20, or whatever it might be, even right. five, um, you are going to be writing so much about this guy, and you're going to be in his head, her head, so much, you need to choose that character wisely and sagaciously because um, you want to be able to create a character who is going to be interesting and durable enough to withstand um, ten um, blatant invasions of his privacy uh, in the form of ten books and still be interesting. Now, um, what are some what are some of the keys to doing that? I mean, this is good, good timing for me because my tenth book about m- my my character Patrick Powers just came out, so <laughs> I had no idea when I started it that I would write ten books with him. Yeah, really. Um, but I think you know, for me, one of the one of the interesting aspects is status. That I don't hear a lot of people talk about status, and that that just like people in real life, we have a different degree of dominance or submission in different relationships. We have equal status or in a teacher, you know, student relationship, one has higher status, a father and a daughter, boss and employee. Um, and let's say that you ride a taxi, you have different status. And for me, de- developing a three-dimensional character means that they don't always have the same status. They're not angry at work and angry at their wife and angry at their boss. That's one dimension. Mm-hmm. Or if they're always in high status and never have equal status with a friend or maybe lower status um, with someone. So so uh, anyway, in this series, Patrick ha- has this stepdaughter that he's trying to care for, and she um, sh- she has lower status relationally, but she always pulls the rug out and says stuff that he doesn't really know what to say to. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so she's a vegan, and, and uh, he's always trying to get her to eat cheeseburgers, and he says, mm-hmm. if God didn't want us to eat cows, he wouldn't have covered them with meat. <laughs> and she goes, he covered you with meat. So, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah, so anyway, so, so he doesn't know what to say in that. Mm-hmm. So in the sense that she actually kind of ends up with higher status. and So sometimes when I, I think about characters... I look for ways to give them multiple layers of status, sometimes higher, like at a crime scene, he'll, he'll always have the highest status, but with his love interests, with his, his stepdaughter, different degrees of status. Yeah. To me, that's one of the aspects that I like to build into series characters. Uh, that's, I've, I've never heard it put that way. I think that's, um, I think that's, um, I think that's really, really interesting. I may, I may try that. <laughs> Yeah, I was taking an improv class many years ago with a guy who'd started theater sports. Um, I think it was called theater sports or comedy theater, comedy sports or something. Anyway, it was it was on improvisation, and so we did all of these improv activities, and one of them had to do with with status. Um, and 
when the activity had one person standing and one sitting, and somebody always had to be touching the chair. Like if the guy who was sitting down stood up, the other guy might have to sit down or touch the chair or something. <laughs> and their goal was to have a conversation and have everyone in the audience believe that they had equal status. Okay, so we would point to the person who we thought had the higher status. So if one person is sitting down and the other is standing, typically the one who's standing has kind of a higher degree of, of status. So, so the person sitting down would have to either through their voice or the way that they would sit sort of equalize that, or, or the, maybe the person standing up would sort of slouch down and, and lower their status by the way that they would mm-hmm. stand. And so... Mm-hmm. So the two people would have this conversation. They would be standing and sitting and, and trying always to match. And I thought, that was so interesting, this idea of status. And I'd never really heard any writers um, discuss it. And for me, it was kind of eye-opening as I developed characters because I thought everything that, that we're studying in this improv class it, it applies just as well to char- character creation in, in the novels that I'm writing. That's fascinating. I love that, that, that train of thought. That's very cool. Yeah. So what are some of the things that you do crafting your characters when you look for a character that you're going to develop into a series character? Do you have some, you know, aspects of their backstory that are really vital for you? Or do you look more at at the current story and the current situations that they're in? I think both. You know, I think um, most good most good novels and most good, um, uh, you know, mysteries and thrillers kind of proceed from from A to Z and kind of two different two different levels, you know. I mean, there's the forward moving story and there's the backward one. You know, there's the background and the foreground, and and those things are are um, are can be equally important. And I really really love books where the past um, is isn't really past, you know. And that's 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 wonderful stuff, I think. And I always try to work with that in mind. So when I go to hatch a character, I mean, that character's past is of of paramount importance. And I think. Um, you know, more often than not, it is not, you know, revealed quickly, you know. Um, slowly over time is kind of how you go backwards, and yeah. quickly through time is how you, how you, um, you know, prosecute the story, you know, forward time. Um, and I think that, um, so I think, I think both the past and the present are hugely, hugely important. I, I wrote a, my longest series is a six-book series, and the protagonist was a sheriff's department deputy named Charlie Hood, and, 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 and during the course of those six books, and they're pretty long books, too. They're, you know, five, six-hundred-page manuscripts and, and times six. And so there's a lot of pages about Charlie. And, and as those books move along the line, um, you know, they, 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 they press forward, of course, as most novels should and suspense novels should and mysteries. But they also kind of pry backwards, you know. And the, the more time you can spend with all those pages, the deeper you can get into what's happened to him in the past. So that the past and the present become sort of this this volatile brew that um, you know propel the story, you know, forward into its final its final chapters and stuff. And and I think that's really really wonderful. And um, and I think also that in, in in creating any character, whether it's going to be a series character who will come back or not, I think. Um, I think it's really the way I, I, I like to work is I is I try to tell myself everything that's logical and sort of um, this, that this character by nature has to, probably will have to have in his character his personality 
her personality in order to be doing whatever he or she is doing in the book, you know. I mean, right. cops um, have certain attributes. Secretaries have certain attributes. Accountants have certain attributes. Um, shortstop, major league shortstops do. Synchronized swimmers do. Um, you know, lifers in prison do. There, there are certain things that these characters have that are kind of non-negotiable. And so what I try to do is, is, is once I know what a character does, I try to figure out who that character logically is and what kind of a background he might come from and what kind of, um, you know, what his history is. And then I try to figure out a way to make him... Um, make him different and make him deep by giving him a set of desires and things that he wants to accomplish and so that you have this sort of logical brew surrounding uh, you know the major league shortstop but when you get to know him better you find out that you know what he really wanted to do with his life was be a stand-up comedian and so mm. now you have a character who has depth and has interest and is not who, who is who is the opposite of a of a cliche and i think when you scratch the surface of any person, real person, you know, doing any real job, um, you rarely get a cliche. We're pretty complicated, and if you can suggest that and, and scratch the surface of that complication as an author uh, through a character and a story, um, you've done a great thing for your reader, I think. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, a lot of times in writers' conferences, everyone is taught that your character needs to be consistent, and I understand what they're saying, is the character needs to be consistently who they are. But what happens is people end up saying, okay, I'm going to make him consistent. He's, you know, always headstrong or whatever it might be, or he's, a, he's consistently a sports hero. But what you're talking about is, no, we need complications. We need contrast, and that contrast and those complications, that's what give the depth to it. It isn't about being, you know, always this, uh, this type of person, yeah. but actually, like you said, all of us have these contradictions and so on yeah, within it's, us. It's that, yeah, it's that stunning sort of revelation, self-revelation often, you know, that something a character will say or do that just, you know, it's, it's, it's 250 pages into the book and she's been this way the whole time, and suddenly she says something that, just, that, that totally reveals another side of her that's been active and participating in this story all along that she's kept hidden from you, and I think that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, I like that too. Um, so, as we were as we were talking a little bit about mystery and suspense, um, I was thinking of the role of violence. Like, it would would you say? I don't think your books are extremely violent, not not at all compared to some of the stuff that's out there. But how does violence relate to mystery and suspense? I sometimes think that violence actually can decrease the amount of suspense. Hmm. Hmm. Like, you know, if you think of um, the Silence of the Lambs movie, I mean, um, how much violence is there actually in the movie? There's almost no violence. There's only one scene where Hannibal Lecter attacks a guard. Otherwise, there's a, there's really no violence hardly in, in the movie. Or the movie Seven has almost no violence on screen um, except for the very, very last scene. And so... But then you think about th those are considered, you know, really suspenseful kind of mm -hmm. movies. Then you think of other movies that have tons of violence, a slasher movie or something like that. And those are never really lifted up as terrifying movies. Yeah. They're sort of discounted. And, and I think that the, the violence can numb, can numb us and that, um, that can actually short circuit the suspense with the building building of the tension yeah yeah i think there's something to be said for that i think that um you know the you know vi violence is certainly a part of 
of, of the mystery and the suspense story. I mean, it doesn't sure. necessarily make it a violent story. It can be it can be a cozy, but it's still a mystery. Um, but there's still, you know, somebody shot in the kitchen, you know. Yeah. Um, um, you know, I think the only thing, the only time that I don't, that I will categorically dismiss violence is when it's not taken seriously, you know. Yeah. Like, it's supposed to be funny like a spoof. You know, I hate spoofs of mysteries, you know, where, where, where death is funny and you're not supposed to really take it seriously and it's supposed to be kind of entertaining and jocular, but it's really a, a murder mystery with yucks in it. You know, I don't like that. I like, um, I, I like a, a serious story in which the consequences of violence are, 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 are dire and, and dark and, and powerful, and I think that, um, that violence should always be taken, you know, seriously as an author. You know, the level of it and how you work it, that's another thing, you know, graphic you know, a, a, a scene a scene can be written violently. A violent scene can be written with 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 graphic visual images in it, or it can be written in such a way that that its consequence and its weight comes through um, without any of that. And so, again, it's kind of it's kind of up to the it's kind of up to the author. I think I think the better and more sophisticated and more more um, craftsmanly authors tend not to be nearly as graphically violent as, as, as those with less experience and less maybe talent. That's just sort of my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's um I, I agree totally. And I think that when the death is treated in a trite manner mm. that um it devalues the the dignity of human life. It does, I agree. Yeah. And um so it seems like if um if i have someone get killed i want it to matter i want people to grieve i want you know the characters to say this person will never go to prom she will never have she'll never see the seashore have a baby and, and i want readers to think well that's tragic because it is i feel like it is tragic yeah yeah well uh, well said I, I i i like that yeah so tell tell us about your new book um I'm curious about the Room of White Fire. It's starting a new series, and it's um, it's a you know it's intriguing. I looked at the cover. And I'm like, I'm already intrigued. I want to know more about it. <laughs> yeah, it's a neat cover, isn't it? Yeah. So, how did you end up with this story, or what, how did it start to develop for you? You know, it's been hatching. It's been you know gestating around in my brain pan for years. Um, the 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 gist of the story, the time of the story, gets back to the mid-early 2000s, not too long after the, the 9-11 um, attacks. And, um, you know, when I was living through that time, I was working hard on my books and, you know, you know, paying attention and reading the papers and watching the news and all. And, and as, as life goes on, you know, you, you, you sort of stumble on certain things. They hit you really hard. And as a, as a writer, um, you put those things aside sometimes. They, they register and you know... Um, you, you know that you care about it, but you kind of put it in the clip file for a while. You know, maybe it's kind of like your like your story about the standing in line in San Diego and yeah, okay. shoot the bad guy. You know, you know that you're gonna you're gonna want that someday. You're gonna need it. And 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 so for me, um, you know, I, I was uh, I was I was collecting stories and moments. And 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 one of the things that hit me really really hard was. Um, was was the, the the kind of slow moving at first and then faster moving revelation that um, the United States was um, employing uh, methods that could be called torture and were called uh, for the sake of propriety enhanced and 
interrogation techniques in secret right. prisons around the world um, that were very little was known about. I mean, they were secret prisons, but it was like the worst kept secret in the world. Everybody knew we had them. And as, as time went by, more and more was known about what was happening in those places. And for me, that was too mysterious and too, 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 too dark and too scattered to handle at the time. But a couple of years ago when I sat down to write a book, I was kind of going through my mind, you know, my mental, emotional Rolodex, you know, or calendar, looking back over the, the years. And I remember being hit by that. And I thought, well, you know, um, I think it's time for me to uh, find out a little bit about, more about that time. And this was at the time when the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence had issued its uh, report on torture, is what it's called. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and that was pretty um, big. It's uh, 1,500 pages of it, and that's just what was declassified. And uh, so anyway, I got that from my senator, and I read through it, and, and um, I started to put together the story that would lead back into, into that world. So, so that's kind of the deep background for the story. And the, the, the front background is uh, much more practical sort of stuff, is um, I've always wanted to write about a PI. I've never written about um, a formal licensed PI. Um, I've written about sort of amateur sleuths and, you know, writers, investigative reporters, and certainly policemen and all, but I'd never written a PI story, and I always liked them, you know. Nice. And so I wanted to do that, and I was in the mood to write in the first person, and I think a PI is a good, good way to... Um, to harness that kind of voice if you're in the mood to write in the first person. And um, I wanted to, uh, so I knew that's what I wanted to do. And so what I did was I wrote this book, and it, it, the way the, the book is, the, the short version of the book is um, a San Diego-based PI. San Diego's near where I live, so that's kind of my hometown um, city. A San Diego-based PI is hired to find a troubled young ex-soldier who has escaped from a high-end mental hospital. And this soldier I knew ahead of time, even though I had no details when I started the book, I knew that this soldier would lead us back into those years, those dark years of 2004, 5, and 6, um, when I found my own soul so troubled by uh, revelations of what um, uh, the United States government was doing um, Abroad, and so that's how the the back end of the story and the front end of the story met, and then go forward. I was doing uh, a research on <laughs> torture, but not nearly as in depth as yours. And and one of the torture techniques that I saw had been developed was the white room technique. Is that does are you familiar with that, or does that come up in your book at all? Or is that related to this story? No, no. Um, the room of white fire in my book is. Um, is um is is code for the the black site prison um at which some of the some of the memories and the activities in the past take place so i'm not okay with the right white room torture let's hear it yeah uh, apparently iran um developed this where they have someone in in a white room and they wear white and they only feed them food that's white they and then they um, the guards all dress in white. Everything is white, and without any sensory, um, it's a, it's a way of sensory deprivation, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, and without developing all your senses to be able to see different colors and stuff, apparently it's it's a terribly terrifying torture technique. You think how hard can it be? You're just in a white room, but there's no sounds. There's there's and everything is, is white and and um I don't know. I, I read about it and, and I thought, Oh, I wonder if this has 
has anything you know to do with it and no i've never been in the white room torture chamber so i really can't say yeah, yeah well that, that's very interesting no i'd not heard of that i have i have here and uh, you know in my research uh, into the, those black site uh, you know interrogation programs i i read a lot and um and read some books you know a lot of books written about it by people who were there and um and um the list yeah no that's intriguing and um yeah, yeah that makes me makes me curious i want to read about that not because i want to see the torture but you know how you weave the story together and i think it was really interesting too is just as you were talking about the different things that were on your mind at the time you know yeah. you wanted to do a pi story and you know first person seemed right and and um that the, that again you trusted your instinct to bring together these disparate things and to develop them into into this you know into this story and yeah, yeah it, it, i know that there are certain you know kind of ways to look at a story that you can analyze this or that and but i think that so much of great storytelling comes through when you have that intriguing character with a pursuit with an unmet desire that and they're facing these you know these huge stakes and and setbacks and hmm. like you mentioned the setting the crisp characterization and the, you know playing with the dynamics of logic and inevitability and surprise yeah i i think there's definitely an art to it and i feel like you've given us a lot of great insights on sort of how well, you I approach so. that yeah I so you know I, I my number one job as a writer, as I see it, um, just kind of on on the surface, my you know rule one for me is to is to remember that you are an entertainer, and don't be afraid to entertain. You know, and after that, if I can if I can supply any kind of interesting history or you know insights into you know certain things that might have happened or sort of a- accidental lessons, I'm happy to do that. And uh, so to hear you say that um, you know I've given you some things. Um, um, that you'll remember, and, and that I'm a writer um, that other writers respect and like to read. Those uh, those words mean a lot to me. Well, absolutely, uh, and I mean it. Um, so as we as we close up here, are there any um, parting words of advice that you can think of that might inspire, um, you know, aspiring authors or people? who are trying to get their stories together. And I think one of the most (laughs) inspiring things for me is just that it takes you a year to write a book, and it takes me almost just as much time. I mean, I I don't understand how people can spin out a book every three or four months. I just (laughs) – it's it's mind-boggling to me. And – but I think that, you know, people say, wow, if it takes him that long, you know, to do a quality book, to do a good book, then, you know, it takes – it takes – Effort and time, and yeah, I think people should be encouraged by that. Um, whether you know whether you're a book a year guy, or even if it's a book every two years, or whatever, whatever it takes, you know, I think uh, you know. For me, I think the the greatest blessing of being a writer is being able to 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 look back on your time and and draw forth the things that moved you. You know, whether it be uh, you know, you know, black side interrogation centers, or 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 your you know the day you married your 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 beautiful wife, or your your first child was born, or or you know when you when when you hit a grand slam in the World Series, or whatever whatever it might be. You know, those important things in your life are what we make stories out of, and and it's really nice to be in the business of writing about things and remembering things and creating things that um, are important to you. 
yeah, things that matter and have that emotional resonance. And yeah, yeah. I think if they do for us, they will for readers. Um, I agree, and it will, and that will help you get through that year because it's a long year. <laughs> it's it's a lot of work. I sometimes tell people I think the problem is is that they're writing too fast and. Mm. So, for example, you know, a lot of times people say, well, you do 1,000 words or 2,000 words a day or 3,000 or whatever it is. And my thing is um, I tell people to write 300 words a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you do that for 300 days, guess what? Um, you'll have, what, 65 days off, 360, yeah, 65 days off to go, you know, take time off from your writing. And at the end of the year, you'll have a 90,000-word book that is – a book of excellence. Yeah. And if you do that once a year for a decade, you'll have produced more great literature than almost any other author in history. You can do it. You can do it with 300 pages a day. I think that's a really, 300 words a day, I think that's a really a nice lesson. I, I tell people that all the time. You know, I say, yeah. I, I'm a little more blunt, but I just, or rounded, but I just say, you know, if you write a page a day, yeah. you know, um, for 365 days, you've got a, you've got a nice manuscript. You've and, got your book and, there. So. Yeah, yeah. And so, right. you know, write, you don't necessarily need to have a, um, you know, write, be able to write your book in eight weeks. I mean, I, I've heard it done. <laughs> I don't know how, but I have to. <laughs> Well, this has been a great conversation, and I really appreciate your time coming on the show, Jeff. And yeah, I've enjoyed this. Just all of the insights, and I love how, how how articulate you are about expressing some of these things that are a little amorphous to many people, some of these inner workings of, of story. Um, so we want to encourage all of our readers to go and check out your, your new book, The Room of White Fire, and and if they haven't read um, any of your other work, would you say what would you say is the best place to start besides this newest book? Is there another book that you think would be good for people to kind of become familiar with your writing? Oh gosh, you know I'm, I've always been partial to California Girl. I think Silent Joe is a good place to start. Um, I think my last uh, Charlie Hood book, The Famous and the Dead, is a, a, um, a, a quirky and, 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 and riveting kind of kind of read. So uh, anywhere is a good place to start. I think they'll all I think they'll all you know hit home. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, that sounds great. Um, and where online is a good place if people want to follow your work or your career? Is there a website or Facebook or Twitter account that you, yeah, that you like got, to Yeah, I got all that. Out? I think the website's a good place to start, you know, um, tjeffersonparker.com. And uh, it's you know relatively up to date, and i got a little tour schedule on it and a description of the new book. If, if any of you guys are curious, you can go there and see if it looks like your, your cup of tea. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I blather a little bit on Facebook and Twitter now and then. Excellent. Yeah, uh, and for anyone who's interested, you can check out my books at um, stephenjames.net, and uh, Twitter is read Stephen James. For more information about our other guests and to check out our other broadca- broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. We thank you all for listening, and always remember... The art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.